with one voice, with one movement, across cultural lines and denominational lines, across political lines and personal preferences. Let there be one cry in this land, a cry for the Spirit of God to once again touch this land with revival and awakening, a cry from brokenhearted people, from wounded people, from hurting people, from desperate people, from pastors in pulpits to people in pews. Let our one cry be, God send revival. Lord, the time is too late. The hour is too short for us to be playing games at the foot of the cross. We must see you work. As the winds of judgment begin to blow across this land, as you strip away from us everything that we've trusted in, our bank accounts, our investments, our homes, our economic and financial security, our role of world leadership, God is all of that is beginning to be stripped from us and we stand naked before you, a people who need to be ashamed of our pride. God, with one cry, give us hearts to hear from you. Clothe us in humility and in brokenness. Tear off the facades, the mask that we wear as we play and pretend church and raise up an army of godly men and women who desire nothing more than to see the hand and the movement of God in our midst, in our day, in our lifetime. For we pray it in the name the only one who can bring revival, Jesus Christ, the Lord and head of the church. Amen. Amen. We begin this morning a new series entitled One Cry. It's not an original title with me. I happen to have the privilege of being a part of a movement in America today that was actually birthed at the Refresh Conference uh, over a year ago in Pigeon Forge. Byron Paulus, who's the head of Life Action, was there with us taking a week off at our invitation. And during a message uh, by Daniel Simmons, God began to speak to him very clearly about what needed to happen in the future ministry of Life Action, but also a worldwide cry, a nationwide cry for God to send revival and awakening to our land. And out of that came the One Cry Movement. I had the privilege of being the speaker at Life Action on their 40th anniversary when the One Cry Movement was rolled out. This church has invested significant money in that movement, believing that if we don't see revival, we're going to see the collapse of our land. That's right. And so in light of all of that, I want leading up to refresh. 
I want us to spend these next few weeks focusing on nothing but where we need to be with God, individually and collectively. And so on Sunday mornings, we'll be looking at 2 Chronicles 7.14. On Sunday nights, we're going to be looking at the book of Judges, because Judges is a picture of a cycle that we are in in America today. As we look at 2 Chronicles 7.14, it is a prayer that God, by His very nature, has to answer. In the midst of pestilence, in the midst of violence, when His people get serious about calling on Him, God begins to move in ways that He doesn't move in certain seasons in our lives, in special ways. Revival is a sovereign and supernatural work of God. You can't print up a program. You can't announce a sermon series. You can't have a poster or a method. That doesn't bring revival. It is sovereign. It is supernatural. It is costly. Revival always brings the church back to the cross back to the place of brokenness and humility. It is always the result of a praying people and of a people who have returned to the Word of God. D.O. Moody said the Holy Spirit is God at work in revival. America has been void of anything that we would historically know as a revival or a great awakening for over a hundred years. None of us really understand revival because we've never truly seen it. We've read about it. We've had glimpses of it. A few weeks ago, Stephen and I met with members of Life Action and Nancy Lee DeMoss from Revive Our Hearts talking about revival and that there is a whole generation that does not even understand the term and it just goes right over their head. But it is a good term. Revival is a waking up, a renewing of what has become cold or passive or indifferent. But what we're really praying for is not just revival, but awakening, because we are dead, and we need life. We need the life that only God, by His Holy Spirit, can bring to a church. General William Booth, who was a founder of the Salvation Army at the time of the Ulster Revival in 1859, realized that the history of what God has done in the past is the secret of what God will do in the present and the future. The prayer of revival is simply this. Lord, do it again and do it now. Lord, do it again and do it now. We need to learn from the scriptures what God says about revival. Several years ago, Billy Graham was uh, talking to a university professor in a secular university and asked what he thought the greatest need of the hour was. The professor said this, I may surprise you because I am not a religious man, but I believe that the greatest need that we have at this hour is a spiritual awakening which will restore individual and collective morals and integrity throughout the nation. There's a man running for the United States Congress in another state. He knows he cannot win. 
He knows it will be impossible for him to even come close to winning. His platform is this. If God doesn't send awakening to revival, we are ruined as a nation. He's not promising jobs. He's not promising immigration reform. He's not promising that we will have economic prosperity. He's saying if we don't have revival, we'll be sunk. By the way, that's the only politician you can believe. The rest of them are lying to you. Nobody, nobody, nobody can guarantee that this nation is going to turn around. Because if God has sovereignly ordained for this nation to undergo judgment, no politician can stop it. But if by the prayers of God's people, he has sovereignly ordained that one more time he will touch this nation, no politician can stop that either. And we need to seek God for revival. Revival is a part of how God works. Why does he work that way? Because God knows that by our very nature, we are depraved. We are sinners. We long to have our own way. And God comes down in those seasons of refreshing to remind us that the heart bent towards sin cannot be satisfied. I'm doing a lot of reading right now on the second great awakening, which may in fact be the greatest awakening the world has ever known uh, since the Reformation. It happened in the 1850s in a time very similar to our day. It was called the Prayer Revival, another name for it. Charles Spurgeon said, the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord have at last dawned upon our land. Everywhere there are signs of aroused activity and increased earnestness. A spirit of prayer is visiting our churches. Around the 1857-1858, a move of God began in America that we have not seen since the 1850s. It not only swept across America in the Northeast, but it went all the way out West to where there were frontier lands and, and God moved in great ways across Kentucky and across the Mississippi River and on out into the Western frontier. It brought a prayer revival to Ireland. It brought a great revival to Wales. It is said that in 1857 and 1858, every church in Scotland, regardless of the denomination, had massive prayer meetings. In 1859, the United Presbyterian Church, oh, that Presbyterians were back here today. The United Presbyterian Church said one-fourth of their members attended prayer meeting every week. Now, let me just put that in perspective for us. If one-fourth of the members of Sherwood Baptist Church came to House of Prayer on Sunday nights, we would have 750 people in House of Prayer, not 200. You want to know why we need revival? We can't even get 12% of our membership to care enough about the situation in America and in our community to come before worship and pray. We are a church in need of revival. One-fourth of the membership came to pray. By the end of 1859, there were 24 daily and 60 weekly prayer meetings in London. 
Oxford and Cambridge universities held revival services and prayer meetings. In the United States, in one year, one million new believers came into the kingdom. In the British churches, one million new believers. And out of that came an awakening which gave birth to, among other things, the Salvation Army and the China Inland Mission. When God works in revival, social justice needs are met. Because a revived church sees a world the way God sees it. It sees the lost and the needy and the poor the way God sees them. But apart from revival, we only see our own checkbooks and our own lives and our own calendars. Spurgeon said, would to God that religion were more vital and forceful among us so that as to create powerful public opinion on behalf of truth, justice, and holiness, a life that would purify the age. I want you to read with me 2 Chronicles 7, but I want to pick up at verse 13 before we get to verse 14 to see the context of a revival prayer. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. God is looking for people who can pray in such a way that he pays attention because they're serious. Amen. They're not casual, they're not flippant in their praying, they are serious in their praying. These are familiar words from the time of Solomon and Solomon was followed by some wicked kings, two in particular Manasseh, who rebuilt the high places of idol worship. He even built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord. He was guilty of idolatry. He was guilty of wickedness. And there in the shadow of the temple, the great temple that Solomon had built, Manasseh built altars of false worship. Today, on the site of the temple where God once dwelt in his glory, there is a Muslim mosque that sits on the very site where Abraham offered up Isaac, where God met his people, where God forgave the sins of the people, where the blood of sacrifice was spilled out. Now there is a spiteful dome of the rock that stands on the land that God says belongs to his people. It's no different today than it was in the day of Manasseh. Idolatry in the very shadow of where the Holy of Holies once stood. Manasseh was an evil king, but he was followed by Ammon, his son, who was much worse. In fact, his son was so bad he was murdered after two years. The nation began to unravel politically and religiously. During those two years, the temple was neglected. 
By the way, they were just offering sacrifices to idols in the shadow of the temple. Now, with the sun, depravity increases and the temple is neglected. They completely lost the book of the law. Idolatry was on every corner. The priests were corrupt. But in 656 B.C., Josiah was born. He was made king, now think about this, when he was eight years old. Here was a young man who had no godly example in his father or his grandfather. There was no one who was speaking into his life, who was setting the standard for him in the ways of God. But at age 16, 2 Chronicles 34, 3 says, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Josiah ignored the example of his father, ignored the example of his grandfather, and went back to his great-great-grandfather, to David. And there he looked for the example. Lewis Drummond says that revival always finds its final answer in God's sovereignty. The Lord's people need to awaken to the reality that he alone controls his work and will give his people what they need when they need it. Josiah was what God's people needed when they needed it. But they had gotten so far away and so far down that God had to look down and not find elders and Levites and priests, but find a 16-year-old teenager and say, that's the young man I will trust to turn this nation back to God. Oh, that God would raise up a 16-year-old in Sherwood. A 16-year-old, a 13-year-old, an 18-year-old in the churches across our land that would be the instrument that God could use to turn this nation back to himself. Josiah was a man who understood that God is sovereign in revival but he also understood that God uses human instruments. He understood a great truth of Scripture, that there is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Yes, God can send revival whenever he chooses to, but it is man's responsibility to seek God that he would do it. Here's a man who chose David as his role model by the time he was 20. In just four short years, that's one presidential term, by the way, in just four short years, an awakening had begun. And there are two keys to the revival under Josiah which tie into 2 Chronicles 7.14. First of all, he removed the idols. He removed the idols. 2 Chronicles 34 and verse 4. With his own hands, with his own hands, the king didn't send the army to do this. The king didn't send out representatives to do this. He tore down the incense altars and broke the graven images. He wiped out the idolatry on the mount and in Jerusalem with his own hands. The very nature of revival demands that we deal with idolatry. He purged the land of idols. We were... Uh, on a panel on uh, Tuesday, I think. Was it Tuesday of the committee? On Tuesday. Uh, Bill Elif and Tom Elif and uh, Sammy Tippett and one of the Life Action Revivalists. 
uh, were on a revival panel. We had about 500 pastors in the room. And uh, we talked about revival and about what God's got to do to bring this land back. And I saw in that room a glimmer of hope. In fact, as Tom and I were sitting on the platform together, he, he leaned over to me and he said, I remember when the people that came to this were just a handful. Pastors were too busy hobnobbing and going after their favorite restaurants to go talk about revival or to hear about revival. And here we were in a room with 500 having to turn pastors away because we didn't have any room for them to come into the room to hear and to talk about and to pray for God to send revival. It begins by a purging of idols, by that which grieves the Holy Spirit, which stops revival. Idolatry is nothing to shrug our shoulders at. Now, we typically think of idolatry as bad things, as a Buddha statue or as some graven image. But idolatry can be a good thing. You can make an idol out of your family. You can worship your family. You see, we have idolatry in the American church today. We're full of it. We're full of idolatry. We stay home from church to have family time. In other words, what we've said to God is, my family means more to me than you. That means your children or your spouse have become a God and an idol, and God shares His glory with no one. You may be dressing your idol to go to school this fall because you don't think about the fact that God alone deserves your praise. Idols can be good things. It can be the name of a church. It can be our reputation in the community. It can be pride in our facilities. It can be any number of things. It can be a tradition. It can be a form. It can be a style of worship. It doesn't have to be a bad thing, but anything that is exalted above God is an idol. Miss Bertha Smith, who I wish you had had a chance to meet, in fact, really I don't, because if you had met her, you would have never been the same. A little short missionary lady always wore these little plain print dresses. She came up to bat here on me. She could beat the stew out of any preacher on the planet. She was a missionary in China until the communist takeover. She was a part of the Shantung revival, which I pray happens again in China. Shantung was the largest northeast province of China. And one of the missionaries during that time, the wife of a famous missionary, uh, Mrs. Charles Culpepper, began to have problems with her eyes. She was writing translations of the Bible into the language of the people, and she began to be where she could not see. And so they gathered together to pray for her, and they gathered to pray that God would heal her eyes so she continued to write these translations of the Scripture. And one man in that prayer meeting stood up and quoted James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And she said, while we were there praying for God to heal our fellow missionary, God began to convict us 
of sinful attitudes toward one another, of bitter spirits and jealousy toward each other as missionaries, there to share the gospel, but envy and strife had entered into our fellowship, and we began to confess those sins, and God fell on them, and with one heart, they began to cry out to God. And they were celebrating and glorifying God. And then Miss Bertha said, I was convicted that I had never prayed for the opening of the spiritual eyes of the people in China like I had prayed of the opening of the physical eyes of my friend. And she said, I was broken. And immediately those missionaries went down on their knees before God and they confessed two things their carelessness in sharing the gospel with other people and their carelessness in confessing sin to one another. Bill Eliff told the story about how when the revival hit the Summit Church in Little Rock and for weeks prior to that, God had told him to put a microphone right down at the edge of the pulpit. He said the only people that knew it was there were, were me and the sound guy. He said, for weeks nothing happened. Then one day, somebody came up and began to confess sin. And every night for eight weeks, they had church services. Because revival came to their church as they got right with one another, as they got right with the Lord. You see, Miss Bertha said that one of the keys to revival is confessing sin. And she used to make people give a sin list and start writing down your sins. And I remember one story in particular where a guy said, I can't think of any. And she said, guess. <laughs> and she said he got it right on the first one. <laughs> Second thing that Josiah did is he repaired the temple and true worship was restored. We sang this morning some songs of worship to God. In verse, thir verse 8 of chapter 34, it had been 75 years since the Temple Mount had been filled with the praise of God. Josiah knew that worship was a key to revival. We know that from John 4, 24, that we're to worship God in spirit and in truth, that our worship is a spiritual act of service, Romans 12, 1. Evan Roberts, the key person in the revival in Wales in 1904 to 1906, said a key to the revival was to obey the Spirit promptly. That in true worship, we obey promptly, we yield quickly, and we renew our minds. If you look at 2 Chronicles 34, 14, it was in repairing of the temple that they found the Bible. They found the law of God, and an evidence of revival is that there is a restored hunger for the Word of God. Listen, write this down. Spiritual awakening always soars on the wings of the Word. Spiritual awakening always soars on the wings of the Word. Otherwise, it's an emotional experience. It's a shallow experience. But when God is working, it is always a word-driven work. And so they began to read the word. It took about 12 hours to read those first five books of the scripture. But they began to read the word and God began to work. 
Before we moved into this facility, it's hard to believe it was 12 years ago, but before we moved into this facility 12 years ago, we stood at this pulpit, person after person after person. A staff member prayed over them over here. And then there was a Bible sitting here. Someone could use their own Bible or they could read out of the Bible that was sitting here. And then they signed their name in the front of that Bible. And then a staff member prayed for them as they exited out of the room. And over 72 hours, we read from Genesis 1 to the last amen in Revelation. In fact, we ended at 9.30 in our first Sunday morning service in this building. We ended at 9.30 with the downbeat of the music on the last word out of Revelation. The week prior to refresh is not only going to be a week of prayer this year, but it's going to be a week where we once again read the word from Genesis to Revelation. And you're going to be invited to volunteer to come and to sign up for time, 20-minute time slots, and to read out loud the word of God. Today, where I stand, there's a Bible open, the Bible that laid on this pulpit on that day over 12 years ago. There's a Bible open to Psalm 119. The signatures of every person that read during those days is inside that Bible. Some of them have gone to be with the Lord. But we're going to once again read the Word out loud and let the Word of God speak to our hearts by the simple reading of Scripture so that refresh this year is first and foremost Word-driven. That we are driven to remind ourselves what God has said to us. Pick up in 2 Chronicles 34 and verse 19. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Drop down to verse 27. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people from the greatest to the least. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. The king heard the word and it broke his heart. It led him to repentance. Verse 32. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel and made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. So how do you know if you need revival? First of all, are you sensitive to the still, small voice of God? When the Word of God is read, does it quicken something inside of you? Does it convict you? Does it make you rend your heart? Does it humble you to see what God has said in His Word that is greater than anything any preacher is going to ever say to you? Do you hear a still, small voice? Are you a student of the Word? 
You see, there's no hunger for God if there's no hunger for the Word. Are you a student of the Word? Are you sensitive to the smallest sin that could grieve the heart of God? It says, if my people called by my name. That's us. That was them, and that is us. During the 15th century, the feudal system was collapsing. There was economic and social collapse. Materialism was a driving force. The Renaissance was in full bloom. Society was increasingly secular. And the Catholic Church was incredibly corrupt. Pope Sextus IV was known for his cruelty to other people. Pope Alexander VI was a homosexual. Pope Julius II was an infidel. One Italian historian said of the popes and of the Catholic Church of the 1400s to the church and priest of Rome, we Italians owe this obligation that we have become void of religion and corrupt. But in 1481, a depressed Roman Catholic monk immersed himself in the Bible. He began to study the Scriptures and came to saving faith out of his tradition-soaked soul. It is said that this friar was a pre-Reformation reformer. He preached the Word of God with conviction in Florence, Italy. He preached over 300 sermons out of Revelation. He preached against a corrupt culture and the church of his day, which he served. He was a prophet in a land of priests who had all sold out. One historian describes his preaching this way. The meditative style of the friar was flung aside as the mantle of the prophet fell upon him. Fire flashed from his eyes. The thunder came into his voice. Now in scorching indignation, the sentences rushed out, never halting, never losing intensity or volume, until his voice became the very voice of God himself. It seemed that the building rocked and swayed as if moved by the mighty passion of his words. And what of the hearers? They were as clay in his hands. Tears gushed from their eyes. They beat their breasts and cried unto God for mercy. The church echoed and re-echoed with their sobs. The preaching of one friar in one city totally transformed that city. A spiritual awakening began that moved from Florence and covered all of northern Italy. And Florence became known as it even is today as the city of God. It is the Florentine revival. This monk preached with such passion and such power that the Pope ordered him to be killed and said in the order, even if he be another John the Baptist. On May 23rd, 1499, this friar was taken to the gallows, led there by a bishop of the Catholic Church in charge of hangings. 
And he said to the friar, I separate you from the church militant and the church triumphant, of which the Catholic church was neither. And the friar replied, not from the church triumphant. That is beyond your power. And he was hung. But they could not stop the revival that started under his preaching. Oh, that God would raise up a friar, a priest, a pastor, a layman who could make buildings shake by their preaching of the Word of God. Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed? Two weeks ago during the Men of Honor simulcast, Ed Litton challenged men to occupy the altar. And I want to challenge you today to occupy the altar, to draw the circle around your own heart and around your own life and say, God, send revival to my soul. Send revival to my heart. Send revival to this church. Send an awakening to this land. Purge us of that which is not of you. Cleanse us of even the slightest sin that we so easily compromise and justify. God, do something that cannot be explained. Change us in ways that we have never seen before. Don't do a shallow work in our heart and in our lives. Do a deep work within our heart. Do a deep work within our lives that we would occupy the altar, the throne of God, that we would plead before a God of mercy. God reign down. God come down with one cry, with one voice, with one heart, that the Holy Spirit would hear our cries to reign down on this place. Oh, that God would do among us what He has never done before. That He would touch us to the depths of our soul, to the depths of our being, that we could not stand, we could not sit, we couldn't even kneel without understanding that we answer to a holy God. A God who longs to bring a breath of revival to our land, who longs to change our hearts praise team and choir are going to sing Holy Spirit rain down and as we pray and as we cry out to God and as we call on his name let us call for God to rain down on this place to rain down across this land that somewhere today he would find a pastor he would find a people if not us somebody that would long for God to do what he longs to do and that we would get on the same page with God and let Him rain down in our midst. As they sing, you continue to come and cry out.